This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 6, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Neil Gorsuch, President Trump's nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court, has a long track record. There are a few potential reasons for concern about his nomination based on his own writing. Ilya Soman, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, discusses the Gorsuch nomination and the broader judicial wars in the Senate. I've spoken with uh, Cato's Ilya Shapiro and uh, Andrew Grossman, both of which have read a great deal of the opinions of uh, Neil Gorsuch, who has been nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court by President Trump. So what are your uh, big takeaways from having looked at some of his past opinions? I would say that he's a conservative. For the most part, he thinks of himself as a tactualist and an originalist as well. Uh, the most distinctive thing about his opinions is his hostility to Chevron deference, which is this longstanding doctrine that when a federal law is ambiguous, when things are unclear, you defer to an administrative agency's interpretation of the law so long as that interpretation is quote unquote reasonable. Uh, clearly, Judge Gorsuch is not a fan of this doctrine. Uh, his ideas are very much a challenge to the dominant orthodox view in this field. I think overall, he's probably right about this, but this is the one area where somebody could plausibly say he's in some sense out of the mainstream. Okay. And, and, and that idea of Chevron deference, deference to uh, administrative agencies with reasonable interpretations of vague laws, that sort of gets at the delegation issue. The two, the two things are different, actually. Delegation is the idea that Congress deliberately delegates certain decisions to an agency. Uh, here, there might not have been a specific delegation or statement that Congress will get to decide, I'm sorry, that the agency will get to decide this issue, uh, but rather that uh, the agency merely enforces congressional law, but in the process of enforcing it, they may interpret it. And when they interpret it, there's a question of should the courts give any special deference to their interpretation or should the courts just independently make up their own mind about what the law means? Well, but I guess what I mean is as a political matter, uh, the benefits that accrue to lawmakers for writing vague laws is the ability to blame administrative agencies for, in many cases, just making a good faith effort to interpret them. In some cases, that's possible, uh, though in reality, in recent decades, laws have actually been getting more detailed and precise. Think about something like Obamacare, which is thousands and thousands of pages long. Okay, that's fair. So what are the concerns that you have about uh, Neil Gorsuch and his background? I think the biggest concern that I have flows from an article that he wrote in 2005 where he very much praised New Deal liberals and their uh, strong deference to political branches. He actually was sort of attacking or some would say even trolling modern liberals for straying from their New Deal roots. And of course, the decisions from the New Deal era that he was praising were ones that provided extreme deference to Congress on issues of federalism. The New Deal liberals believe that there should be almost no judicial enforcement of federalism limits on national power. Now, it's not completely clear that Gorsuch had fully considered the implications of what he was saying in that article. And I'm not saying it's this definitely proves that he will be bad on federalism issues if he were on the court, uh, but it is cause for concern. And it was an article. It wasn't an, an opinion. It was an article. And look, we all sometimes write things in articles, those of us who write a lot, that in later years, you might say, you know what, I went too far. 
I made a mistake, but Judge Gorsuch strikes me as a careful person who carefully considers his words, and therefore, until we have further evidence on this, it's worth taking him both literally and seriously. Okay, so what were the uh, cases that he was praising? The case, he didn't praise specific cases in this article. Rather, he praised the general attitude of New Deal liberals uh, to congressional power. And he seemed to endorse uh, the fact that the New Deal liberals ultimately put forward a jurisprudence which rejected challenges to various New Deal programs in which, as he put it, Congress was engaging in economic and social regulation. So if somebody is very critical of Chevron deference, would you expect them to be critical of this uh, issue of federal power against state power? The two are separable in that one is simply a question of who gets to interpret the laws. Is it an agency or should the courts take the lead? But the scope of those laws could potentially be very great. Uh, the other issue is a constitutional question. Uh, should the courts or when should the courts be willing to override the political branches? And in that same article, he also said that judicial review actually overruling the political branch of government should be reserved for a extraordinary circumstances. Uh, and again, it's not entirely clear how far he really wanted to take this idea. But if you really take this seriously and apply it across the board, it would enable the government to get away with a lot of unconstitutional actions. Uh, more generally, this is part of the broader debate uh, on the political right, but also to some extent on the left about whether courts should, in effect, give government the benefit of the doubt and give it a break. Uh, and in my view, that they shouldn't, uh, that the government should bear the same burden of proof as anybody else. And uh, if it looks more likely than not that they're doing something unconstitutional, it should be struck down. Uh, and those who say that uh, judicial review should be reserved only for extraordinary circumstances often seem to be implying that we should, in fact, give the government a break. Though I would say that when you look at his jurisprudence on various issues on the bench, it doesn't seem to be, it certainly doesn't seem to be the case that Judge Gorsuch always bends over backwards to help out the government. There are uh, certainly quite a number of cases where he doesn't. Now, when I spoke with Andrew Grossman, he said it was quite the opposite, that uh, he, in fact, did not appear to give special treatment. He seemed to be an opponent of so-called qualified immunity. Uh, in one of his cases, yeah, uh, that's true. I think uh, in several areas, Fourth Amendment and First Amendment, uh, he does tend to be fairly strong in uh, dealing with the government and uh, not giving him too much of a break. I do worry that what could be going on is he thinks that there are certain uh, issues where you know it's really important for a judiciary to be strong, but other ones not. A lot of people uh, in the judiciary and elsewhere think, well, the First Amendment is a special case. And in the Fourth Amendment cases that people are pointing to, uh, we can get into some of the details, but I feel that they're not actually particularly close cases. And therefore, while Judge Gorsuch certainly reached the right decision in those cases, uh, it doesn't fully reveal his attitude to cases that might be more borderline. Okay. So what, do you, what would you have to say about if you were trying to read tea leaves of individual opinions, which are just sort of little pinholes into what his views might be on other issues, what would you say about uh, his view on the First and Fourth Amendment? 
I would say he's pretty strong in the First Amendment. On the Fourth Amendment, it's less clear, but at the very least, he's not an advocate of you know absolute deference or just bending over background. Uh, I'm sort of bending over backward to give the police what they want. Uh, so. Overall, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable, at least with the jurisprudence that I've seen on those uh, couple of issues. So what do you make of this, uh, for the example, like the New York Times uh, has this, uh, l- t- not a timeline, I guess, but a scale in which they've placed judges at points on a one-dimensional scale, and then they put an arrow at one point in that, in that scale and say, here's where Gorsuch fits. That, that's always struck me as sort of problematic when you're talking about uh, issues that uh, a, an opinion or a decision or a vote is not clear that you can just place that opinion on a one-dimensional line and say conservative, liberal. Certainly, there are a number of different scales that political scientists have come up with to try to rank judges' ideology. None of them are perfect. I do think we learn something from them, particularly for a judge uh, like Gorsuch, who's been on the bench for a decade. That said, whether you look at things on a scale or whether you read his opinions and writings, I think it is fair to say that he's a conservative. Other than perhaps on the issue of Chevron, I don't think it's fair to say that he's out of the mainstream, though I would also add that it isn't always bad to be out of the mainstream. The mainstream is wrong sometimes. So where where are we right now with respect to Chevron deference and what are the costs and benefits of uh, judges engaging in it? Chevron deference is still very much a precedent and on the books. It probably will be even if Judge Gorsuch is confirmed. He can't get rid of it by himself, and I don't think there are five votes for getting rid of it. However, in recent years, uh, the courts, both the lower courts and the Supreme Court, have been chipping away at it at the margin. To give you just one example, in King versus Burwell, the second Obamacare case, the Supreme Court reiterated the doctrine that Chevron deference should not apply on so-called major issues. When it's a really important question, they say, we're not going to assume that this is somehow left to the deference of the agency. We're going to assume that you know we have to interpret uh, the laws ourselves. Uh, and as a practical matter, when you look over the years, what courts have done in this field, often you don't get to Chevron deference because Chevron deference only is supposed to kick in if Congress hadn't clearly spoken to the issue. So sometimes if the courts want to resolve the issue themselves, they'll say, well, you know what? Congress did speak to this. Or uh, this, is the, this, what I just mentioned, is called Chevron stage one. Uh, some cases also get resolved under what scholars like to call Chevron stage zero, which is just the courts don't even bother to mention Chevron and just go on to decide the issue uh, in that way. Uh, so I think, obviously, in more routine, less controversial cases, Chevron does get invoked, and it does make some difference. So I think that if Gorsuch somehow persuades the court to get rid of Chevron, I think that would be a good thing. Uh, But it would be a reform. It would not be some great revolution that would somehow destroy the administrative state, uh, as some libertarians might imagine, or also some some people on the left might fear. But in cases where you have uh, Congress not speaking clearly to an issue and all the judges seem to agree on that. Wouldn't you want 
courts to engage with those, even if they're not so-called big issues? Yes, I would. Uh, I believe that, in general, it's courts that should take the lead in interpreting the law, not agencies. If the agency has an argument to make, the court should listen to it. But it shouldn't give the agency a special break for a variety of reasons. One is it's not the agency's job, ultimately, to make the final decisions on this. And obviously, the agencies often might be biased by their self-interest or by the priorities of the administration that appointed them and any number of other factors. Courts, of course, are not completely free of bias either. We, we can't be naive about that, but they are more removed from the political process and from immediate ideological and political conflicts. And therefore, I think it's better for them to make these decisions uh, than to leave them to agencies. There is this lingering issue, and I, uh, some Democrats are trying to make a big a big deal out of it, and that is the idea that Merrick Garland, who was nominated by President Obama uh, to the Supreme Court, did not receive uh, a hearing, He, much less a vote, in uh, the U.S. Senate. How do you evaluate the arguments that this, this seat is somehow stolen? I think there's two parts of the argument. Some people have said what well, was actually unconstitutional for the Republicans to do what they did. I think they don't really have a leg to stand on when they say that. Uh, the Constitution just says that nominees must get the advice and consent of the Senate before they can take seats on the court. It doesn't say how the Senate can de deny advice and consent. Uh, the Senate can choose to vote the nominee down. They can choose to filibuster a nominee, as Barack Obama, among others, advocated doing with uh, Sam Alito, who became a Supreme Court justice in 2006, uh, or they can choose not to hold hearings or hold a vote at all. I think that's all within the powers of the Senate. So the constitutional argument, I think, is extremely weak. It's more plausible to say that the Republicans just behaved badly and violated a political norm. Uh, I think, ideally, we should give nominees hearings within a reasonable period of time, and clearly the Republicans didn't do that. However, it's also important not to view this action in isolation from the broader war over judicial nominations that's been going on for 25 or 30 years now. What the Republicans did is what leading Democrats have on a number of occasions said they would have done in analogous circumstances. In both 1992 and 2007, when a Republican president was nearing the end of his term and it looked like the Democrats win the next election, leading Democrats, including Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer, who is now the uh, Democrat Democratic leader in the Senate, they both said essentially uh, that if a vacancy came up at that time, they would do the same thing. Uh, and pr Barack Obama's former White House counsel said that recently that if she and the Democrats were in a similar situation, they would have acted just as the Republicans did. Now, this doesn't prove by any means that what the Republicans did was right or a good thing. What I think it does show is that norms in this area had broken down well before uh, this issue arose. And uh, both the Democrats and the Republicans had actually quite often dragged their feet on lower court nominees, including in some cases not even giving them a hearing. Uh, the Democrats did that, for example, with Miguel Estrada, a well-known nominee that President George W. Bush put up for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So I think 
neither side here has clean hands. Neither side is to be believed when they say, well, we're the angels here, and it's only the other guys who are breaking norms. So uh, I think, therefore, that if the Democrats want to say that the Republicans behave badly, that's reasonable to say. Uh, but I don't think it's reasonable to say that you know the Republicans are the solely to blame for the breakdown of norms here and that everything will be set right if only the Republicans are punished for their bad behavior. Uh, I think the Republicans have a plausible argument that they only did what the Democrats would have done where the place is reversed. Ilya Soman is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.